So I actually have no mini rant for you today because, I mean, I hope I will have one as I record, but right now I am recording in the middle of the day in the comfort of a bedroom with indoor heating and my brothers are silent for now, for the time being. And even if they do make a little bit of rustling noise, I hope you can't hear it because I invested in a new microphone for you guys, for your hearing pleasure. So I really do hope that um, that the quality is good and that you don't hear too much vocal fry, which is my own bad. I, I think I had a lot of that last episode. <laughs> um, and I hope you don't hear my lip smacking and I hope you don't hear a lot of the um, ventilation in the background because I can actually hear the vents. I hope you don't hear those because, and there's that vocal fry again. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now and we're just going to get into this episode because I'm so excited. I worked so hard on this and the next episode and I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. So let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Venting Sesh. I'm your host, Omhanim Suger. Thank you for tuning in. Happy Black History Month! It's always around this time of year where I see the memes about how they really picked the shortest month on the calendar to celebrate and commemorate Black history. Which, of course, who is surprised? Certainly not me. I actually thought that October was Black History Month because in senior year of high school, I was in a play written by my law teacher, a course that I dropped immediately after getting a grade lower than an A on the first unit test, because as I've said before, I'm an overachiever, and if I'm not excelling at something the first time I try it and I don't genuinely enjoy it, then it's not worth my time. Anyways, this play included different scenes of historic moments in Black history. We won't talk about the fact that there was so little racial diversity in my school that we had an Arab girl play Rosa Parks. On the bright side, there was no blackface involved. Too political? Would you expect anything less from a venting sesh? So, the play. It was held in October, which our director slash writer slash producer, do you even have a producer in a play? I don't know. Anyways, our one-woman production team told us that October was Black History Month, hence the performance being in October. Take two shots every time I've said October thus far and get alcohol poisoning. (laughs) So fast forward to university and I'm sitting in a class with my Black colleague during this special month and the prof makes a mention of the fact that it's Black History Month, to which my classmate responds under her breath with a comment about how they chose the shortest month of the year to celebrate Black history. And I was like, but there's also October. Isn't that Black History Month too? And she was like, nah-uh. Then I was like, yaha. And then she was like, nah-uh. And then I thought, yaha. Our Black showrunner told us that it was when we were working on a play in my high school. And so I Googled it. And I was partially right. October is Black History Month in Europe. Canadian and American Black History Month is in February. So why is this month important anyways? Why does it exist? Let's get into it. So Black History Month was initially Black History Week, and it was the brainchild of Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson. In 1925, he proposed the idea, and by the next year, 
NEGRO History Week was celebrated in February. 50 years later, in the wake of the civil rights movement, 50 years, wait a minute, that copyright, 1925. Wasn't civil rights in 1950s? Am I stupid? Hold on, let me Google it. Brief intermission, civil rights movement. Yeah, 50s and 60s. Okay, period. I knew it. Okay, so I misspoke. So 25, that's 25 years later, right? Because 25 plus 25 is 50. Um, okay. Okay, let's run that back. In 1925, he proposed the idea, and by the next year, NEGRO History Week was celebrated in February. 25 years later, in the wake of the civil rights movement, the celebration was expanded to a month after President Gerald R. Ford, these people love their middle initials, decreed a national observance. Before, I made a comment about the placement of Black History Month in the baby of the Gregorian calendar year. But the reason why it's celebrated in this 28-day month is because February is when influential American figures Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were born. So this month has historical significance. But the question remains, why have Black History Month in the first place? Now, this may surprise you, but Black people have been grossly mistreated across history. I know, crazy, right? Because of the systemic discrimination that they faced here in North America, Black innovators were rarely ever given recognition for their immense contributions to society. In fact, this is still the case. It seems as though people are constantly forgetting to cite their sources when they come up with the next fashion trend, or the next pop-in music genre, or the next TikTok dance. I sound like such a narc. I'm literally 21. Why, why do I sound like a boomer? So Black History Month is here to remind you silly plagiarizers who the real credit should be going to. This failure to give credit where credit's due is not just about notability and recognition, though. When the original creators of modern-day trends are not cited, so to speak, they miss out on more than just clout. Failure to give credit means that Black musicians who were ripped off by Elvis didn't get the record deal that would have allowed them to build generational wealth. It means the Black kids who invented the dances on the 50s show American Bandstand weren't represented on screen or given the monetary benefits of fame. Does this story sound familiar? It's because history repeats itself. And we're now learning just how many of the popular TikTok dances we associate with right creators are actually created by Black youth. This Black erasure fits perfectly into conversations of cultural appropriation, which is a topic of these next two venting sessions. So let's dive in. Cultural appropriation is a term that's been increasingly used to describe a plethora of behaviors, but a lot of people don't know what it means. I was one of those people. So I did what I do best. I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube. One main video which informed this portion of the episode is titled Cultural Appropriation Revisited by T1J, or Kevin. Kevin begins by distinguishing between cultural exchange, cultural appropriation, and cultural appreciation, a main point of contention for a lot of folks. Try saying that phrase 10 times fast. Cultural exchange is when different cultures of equal footing mutually 
trade different aspects of each other's cultures over their various interactions with one another. Culture A and Culture B are hanging out. And Culture A is like, I like your style of television, Culture B. And Culture B is like, I like your style of music, Culture A. And so they have the great idea of cultural exchange. Examples of cultural exchange include, but are not limited to, learning French, listening to K-pop, and watching reality TV. I don't know if Jersey Shore is an effective representation of American culture, but the scholars are still deciding amongst themselves. Cultural appropriation is one-sided. A dominant and privileged group takes from the culture of a marginalized group, thereby further marginalizing the people by leaving them out of the conversations and the benefits of their own cultures. Culture A is cheer captain. She wears short skirts and high heels, while Culture B is on the bleachers, the margins of society, sporting her t-shirts and sneakers. She's not like other girls. Culture A decides that sneakers are dope and way more comfortable than high heels, so she starts wearing them to school. People start losing their minds. Where did you get those cool sneakers, Culture A? You're such a trendsetter, Culture A. Hey, Culture A, you should do a brand deal with a popular sneaker company. Culture A gets even more popular. Sneakers become her thing, and she makes a whole bunch of money, while Culture B looks on in the sidelines, writing notes to a boy she likes on a notepad she holds up to her window. Cultural appreciation is respectful and informed participation in another culture. Often, it's preceded by approval from members of that culture. However, there's a big caveat here. It's impossible for every member of a culture to approve of the actions of someone outside of that culture. So the best way to determine if you're appreciating or appropriating is to ask yourself a couple questions. First, are you a non-member profiting off or otherwise benefiting from the culture you're gaining inspiration from? If so, the second question you should ask is, are the members of the culture I'm benefiting from involved in my participation in their culture? Are they also reaping the same benefits? If not, then you, my friend, are guilty of cultural appropriation. But even with my attempts at explaining, people may still conflate appropriation and appreciation. And I'll admit, they can be hard to distinguish. But if you're ever unsure, just be sure. It's not that hard. I'm kidding. If you still can't distinguish between whether you're appropriating or appreciating a culture, then maybe you're just stupid. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm gonna give you a real answer. If you still can't distinguish between whether you're appropriating or appreciating a culture, try looking within yourself to determine what your intentions are and make an effort to learn more about said culture, their values, their struggles. And if you're still not sure, then my God, you're indecisive. And also just drop it. Leave other people's cultures alone if you're at risk of further perpetuating minority groups, minority status. It's Black History Month and the topic of this series is cultural appropriation. So let's bring those two things together and talk about how cultural appropriation impacts black communities. I don't know about you, but when I first think about appropriation with regards to black cultures, I immediately think of hair. It was actually the discourse surrounding the Kardashian-Jenner clan's capitalization of braided hairstyles common to black women 
that raised my awareness of cultural appropriation, a phenomenon which has been in existence long before the actions of these infamous culture vultures. Hair, and the styling of it, is an incredibly important component of many of the cultures of Black people. For different tribes across the various countries in the continent of Africa, I'm enunciating because some of y'all do be forgetting the basics of geography, hair has been and continues to be an indicator of social status. For example, which tribe someone belongs to, their religion, their age, their marital status. Some of you may be familiar with Fulani, and that's Fulani, not Boderic braids, Ghana braids, Bantu or Zulu knots, and the red locks of Namibia's Himba women. Hair becomes a contentious topic in the context of the New World, where millions of Black folk were forcibly brought to a land where they were the minority and were thus marginalized. I'm oversimplifying, but this meant that anything and everything that was characteristic of Black people was seen as inferior, including their hair. In the antebellum South, that is, pre-Civil War America, slaves who had so much of their autonomy infringed upon were at least able to style their hair in different ways to maintain some semblance of independence. The white pieces of shit who ran the plantations took note of this, and they used hair cropping or shaving the head as a form of punishment. I wish you could see my face right now. I'm very much angry. In 18th century Louisiana, some, emphasis on some, black slaves were able to buy back their freedom. This whole, uh, I'm literally talking about this shit, and I'm like, how, can I go on a tangent for just one second? What the fuck do you mean buy back their freedom? What the fuck does that even mean? I'm sorry. Did white people have to buy back their freedom? No, white people were just bored with their freedom. But black people were not. I'm sorry, are, you, are y'all not all people? Like, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It's just, okay, I'm going to stop. Okay, I'm going to stop with my, ugh, I don't know. I just, like, what, like this, it, <laughs> it makes no sense. I'm incoherent because it makes no sense. Please make it make sense. Okay, anyways, Jesus, I'm trying so hard to be impartial because like I want to convey this information, but I just like, what do you mean? How am I gonna say in 18th century Louisiana, some black slaves were able to buy back their freedom and just carry on. Like some human beings had to pay money to buy back their freedom. Like, I just can't, I just can't. Okay, anyways, there was a growing free black population in Louisiana because of this. So obviously, as you have a growing free Black population, right, as your demographics change, the culture will inevitably change as well. So the culture of Louisiana um, had more, like there were more interracial relationships and more interracial individuals. Um, And I was reading this article, and I'm just going to quote it here because it was really well um, articulated. Uh, So quote, women of African descent, right, these would be the interracial individuals, explored their style, adorning their hair with jewels and feathers. Their elaborate hairstyles were so enchanting and regal, it exuded the image of wealth. These changes in the culture and fabric of society were seen as a threat to the social order in Louisiana, end quote. So essentially, some saddled bitch decided to enforce the Tignon Law, which stated that, quote, Creole women of color must wear a tignon, a type of head covering or scarf, to cover up their hair, 
end quote, to prevent them, quote, from displaying excessive attention to dress in the streets of New Orleans, end quote. So a lot of people studied this, and one of them was historian Virginia M. Gould, who notes in her book, The Devil's Lane, Sex and Race in the Early South, that the governor was hoping to control women a tale as old as fucking time, um, who, quote, had become too light-skinned or who dressed too elegantly or who competed too freely with white women for status and thus threatened the social order. Lisa Z. Winters reflects this idea in her book, The Mulata Concubine, Terror, Intimacy, Freedom, and Desire in the Black Transatlantic, um, when she argues that the Tinian Law and its ugly siblings, because there are plenty of versions of this, um, were not so much about the, quote, ostentatious vanity of free women of color, but rather about the problem of maintaining the racial economy of slavery. So just as Black people started to get a taste of freedom, the white man shuts it all down in an effort to stay on top. Well, let's see how far you're going to fall when the day of reckoning comes, you racist bastard. There's a special place in hell for bigots. On the bright side, black women sprinkled some of that black girl magic and turned tignons into statements, styling them with the same jewels and feathers which adorned their hair and picking bright eye-catching fabric. But Satan never rests. When slavery was completely abolished, systemic discrimination continued. I know, shocker. In the 21st century, black applicants face job discrimination if they attend an interview sporting their natural hair, and black children have been taunted and bullied for their hair for years. And y'all probably think that this is a thing of the past. The early 2000s might have been bad, but surely no one gets discriminated against because of their hair anymore. <laughs> Wrong, bitch. In 2016, Ruby Williams was sent home because her afro was too big. In the year that shall not be named, high schooler DeAndre Arnold wasn't allowed to graduate with his class unless he cut off his dreadlocks. That was last year, in case you didn't deduce that. So, imagine what a fucking slap in the face it is for people who have been flagrantly disrespected for their hair to see the perpetrators of that disrespect get praised and paid for trying to emulate those very same hairstyles. When discussing hair in the context of Black History Month, one influential figure comes to mind. You may have thought of her too if you're a fan of Netflix-produced historical dramas. Her name was Madam C.J. Walker, played by Octavia Spencer in the show Self Made. Now, a lot of people had criticisms of the show, but I'm not a television critic. I'm merely a consumer, so I won't speak to that. If you're interested though, Kim Foster, also known as 4Harriet on YouTube, has a video all about it titled, Why Are Y'all Making Stuff Up? Thoughts on the historial, historical, I keep saying historical, historical inaccuracies of self-made. What I will speak to is Ms. Walker's history as told by the most reliable website known to man, Wikipedia. So strap in as I offer my rendition of a valley girl recounting facts about Miss Walker's life that she found on the internet in an attempt to increase her knowledge of Black American history, something we should all be doing. Here goes. 
So, like, Madam Walker, whose maiden name was Breedlove, was the first female self-made millionaire in America. Uh, she was born in 1867 and made, like, a lot of money by creating hair care products for black women since there was obviously a shortage of those in the 19th century because, you know, <laughs> racism. Anyways, she was one of those good rich people who, like, give back to their communities. Basically, she was a philanthropist and activist. And some people, like, talk about how she had beef with another prominent Black businesswoman named Annie Malone. But I'm not in the business of pitting women against each other, because that's gross. And 2021 is the year of unlearning our internalized misogyny. Okay? So, both Madam CJ and Annie were badass bitches who paved the way for more female, particularly black female, entrepreneurs. Side note, I rewatched clips from Clueless to get inspiration for that accent that I completely butchered. And God, I forgot how much I love that movie. Alicia Silverstone is such an icon, and I love everything about the writing. It's just chef's kiss. Back to regularly scheduled programming. And with that, dear listeners, I bid you adieu. For all my Black listeners, I love you. You're doing amazing, sweeties. Keep up all your incredible contributions to science, literature, fashion, technology, music, and all the other industries which thrive off of your hard work and excellence. I hope that one day your communities can get all the recognition they deserve for your efforts. For my non-Black listeners, let's try and make this a month of solidarity and support. If you've been meaning to shop a Black-owned business, do it now. If you have a list of Black creators you've been meaning to support, what are you waiting for? We should stay supporting our Black brothers and sisters throughout the year. But this is an especially momentous occasion. I cannot speak. It's been a long hour. Um, long two hours, actually. Uh, this is an especially momentous occasion, so go ahead and donate to that GoFundMe that's been in your bookmarks for months. If you found this episode in any way helpful, please consider sharing it with a friend. I just want to reach as many people as I possibly can, so I can make the most impact. I'm signing off this session, but before I leave, I'd just like to remind you that things will get better, so stay optimistic. Just don't be complicit. Until next time! <laughs>